Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. New Housing Secretary Michael Gove spotlights environmental impact of ugly concrete and steel buildings. TV architect George Clark hits out at the government for its shambolic handling of the cladding scandal. Charles Jenks' postmodernist masterpiece, Cosmic House, opens to the public. Revamped and renamed, we look at the plans for Bethnal Green's new young VNA. And RIBA president Simon Alford promises a design competition to upgrade the Institute's West End headquarters. My name is Zoe Cave, I work at Open City, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The Lundown. My special guest this week is Edwin Heathcote. Eddie is architecture and design critic at the Financial Times. Welcome to the show, Eddie. Thanks so much. Nice to be here again. Our first story this week is all to do with the newly appointed Housing Secretary, Michael Gove's remarks at the Conservative Party conference, which has been covered by the AJ and the UK media. Gove has linked ugly buildings to embodied carbon in a sign that future planning reforms may seek to limit the use of steel and concrete. Speaking at a fringe event at the Conservative Party conference in Manchester, Gove said, quote, We need to think about the materials with which we build. Some of the materials, which have been favoured in the past by developers like steel and concrete, are those with the highest level of embedded carbon and often the materials that are least likely to win fans, particularly outside already densely populated urban areas. Embedded or embodied carbon is a key reason why construction is responsible for around 10% of the UK's annual greenhouse gas emissions, according to London Energy Transformation Initiative, or LETI. According to the Times newspaper, Michael Gove is understood to have ordered a total rethink of Jenrick's proposed far-reaching planning reforms and has ruled out the idea that limits should be put on the power of local planning committees to veto housing schemes. In comments sure to be welcomed by Nicholas Boyd-Smith of the Government's Office for Place and Director of Create Streets, Gove also said that modern housing schemes should learn lessons from examples such as those of the Georgian era. He said, quote, Beauty doesn't mean that every house has to be built in a Georgian style, but there are various human principles about how streets have developed which have been neglected. So, Eddie, what's this all about? This is Gove's first real appearance as the new housing secretary. What do you make of his comments? There are a number of ways into the uh, the question. The first obvious one is beauty. This this word which rears its head occasionally in the in the Tory party, um, and particularly since 
the late Roger Scruton's uh, report on, on beauty. This is now the kind of uh, mantra. But obviously that raises a whole bunch of other questions about whose who's beauty. The other problem I think that needs to be raised at this point is that Michael Gove uh, is, I think, and I tried to count this up last night, um, but I think he's the 12th housing minister in 12 years of the Tory government. Um, I may be wrong. It might be the 13th. Um, but it's clearly not a position that's taken very seriously, a bit like the culture minister in this country. It's something that it's a kind of staging post on the way to something else. Um, and it's maybe the critical issue in um, contemporary Britain. And now it seems to me that here we have Michael Gove, who's to counsel, whose who's title, and I'm reading this off the uh, Wikipedia entry, is the Secretary of State for Leveling Up Housing and Communities and the Minister for Intergovernmental Relations. Now, that's a big agenda, levelling up housing and communities. Is he levelling up housing and communities? Or is he levelling up, comma, housing and communities? And what on earth is that? So it's it's a completely incomprehensible portfolio. And if he was just doing housing, I'm clearly he's a he's an influential, um, you know, uh, thinking man. Gove, you know, he's not my he's not my politics, but he's not an idiot. And if he was just focused on housing and he would stay there for maybe five years and see a policy through, like any of his predecessors have failed to do, that might be a good thing. But it doesn't seem likely. So that's my first reservation. The second. Uh, thing I think we've got to look at is this idea of steel and concrete and ugliness. Um, you know, maybe he's right. Maybe steel and concrete buildings are ugly. Um, but the embodied carbon uh, issue is, is absolutely right on. But then what we need to do is reuse. We need to reuse buildings. We need to find those buildings that have embodied carbon and reuse those intelligently. That's the biggest issue, it seems to me, at the moment. And that's not being addressed at all. And if we're then talking about ugliness, then I can't honestly, as an architect, think of anything uglier than the endless swathes of brick boxes that are built in the exurbs, in completely car-dependent, stranded kind of greenfield locations, which are easy to develop. Um, but obviously, it's the, uh, it's the construction companies and the developers who provide 20 to 25 percent of the Tory party's funding so their interests are going to be served and to pick up a bit more on your point about um does Gove have a point about um concrete and steel and you know then shoehorning ugliness in um embodied carbon is an issue we've discussed a lot here on the London um and it is true that steel and concrete are some of uh, the most carbon intensive materials to produce. So elaborating on, on what you've already touched upon, does Gove have a point here? Should we be veering away from using these? Um, and if we are, what are your thoughts on the sustainable materials like clay bricks, timber or more novel materials like hempcrete, ashcrete or traditional compacted earth? Absolutely. So I think the the the, the concrete and steel uh, that he's referring to are, you know, relatively unsustainable. But the problem here really is regulation. Um, the the construction industry and the regulation have come together to create a situation where it's easy uh, and economical to create certain types of building. For commercial buildings, it's steel and glass. For housing, it's, um, you know, it's a particular kind of uh, brick with concrete foundation and so on. So it, it, if you try and introduce any innovation in materials, everything is complex. And the one thing that 
mass developers don't like is complexity. So you know we're able to to build bespoke one-off houses for you know relatively wealthy people out of innovative materials, whether they're cork or hempcrete or you know handmade brick. But they're not. I mean, the mass of housing is you know what we see on the uh, kind of exurbs and on the edges of motorways, uh, or it's it's inner city housing, which is steel and concrete and glass, but with a, a, a brick rain skin, you know, a kind of fake brick rain skin applied. And so then to, to drill down a bit more on the aesthetics point, um, here Gove quite explicitly links aesthetics to environmentalism, bringing up the age-old debate of classism versus modernism. Do design aesthetics have a place in discussions surrounding greening up the construction sector? It's very tricky because whose who's aesthetics are we talking about? I think the the... The assumption is always that the masses like a particular kind of semi-detached or detached brick house with a pitched roof and a kind of vaguely Georgian sensibility. Um, but that's because that's what they've been offered and that's the, the, the range is so limited in, in what they've been offered. Uh, you know, there are architects like, uh, uh, you know, Peter Barber is such a good example, but, the, you know, there are others uh, who, who offer kind of alternatives in... Um, you know, in aesthetic, in in scale, in material uh, uh, approach, but they are they remain relatively isolated. So the the you know there is I think an architect sort of a what would you call them a left wing uh, kind of council house building uh, enthusiast like uh, like Peter Barber remains on the fringes and the. And the the mass house builders are not really paying attention because they have their business model worked out. And I think if ministers went to some of those, uh, you know, the the, the kind of careful, more careful, more um, intelligent sort of housing developments around London, then they they would be impressed by Mm. the beauty of them. That's the irony, I think, is that there is this conflict between the mass house builders who are funding the Conservative Party and have their business model uh, and the construction industry as well. Uh, and uh, you know what? What is an architecture that actually is is sitting right in front of our noses and could be adopted on a wider scale, but mm. isn't being because it doesn't really fit in with the business model? So, and I think beauty is a you know is a, is an emotive subject. So it it goes with the kind of Brexit agenda, uh, which is a, a sort of little Britainism. Uh, you know, we want to return to what is a high skilled. Uh, you know, labour force owning their own beautiful brick houses in uh, in Georgian type Poundbury streets. It's a kind of it's a, a sort of weird, nostalgic, uh, neocon vision of a of a, a future that's kind of unrecognisable. I think I can't I can't quite understand what this future might be. Yeah, or, or a past that for so many wasn't accessible either. Either like so few people actually lived in those. Yeah, it's profoundly uh, problematic. The, the, there's actually a very good series on the radio at the moment, Lindsay Handley on housing, uh, you know, where she's talking to um, uh, homeowners and renters uh, about their experience of housing. And all of, the, all of the homeowners, I think, that she talked to in some way benefited from um, the, the right to buy that the Conservative government brought in in the, in the 1980s. And that has enabled uh, an entire generation of boomers to own their own houses, but it's completely shut everyone else who's younger than that, you know, from Generation X downwards, uh, out of the market. And, um, you know, that that 
I'm sorry to veer off from beauty to uh, you know council houses, but I think that needs to be addressed before anything else can can be done. You know, the 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 government will talk about well, we are building three hundred thousand houses a year or homes a year. Well, they aren't building any. You know, the private sector is building three hundred thousand a year, but the government is building no houses a year, and they're not helping local authorities to build houses either. So I think that there's a there's a real problem with. Uh, with supply of the right kind of house. Beauty is a kind of carapace that's laid over things to make it, a dis- to, to kind of, it's a MacGuffin. It's, it's something that's laid over the conversation to take it in a direction that generates a little more culture war. Uh, rhetoric. Yeah, and putting it in context as well, beauty is now the buzzword in the way that concrete monstrosity was the buzzword for a while and it's almost like I think seeing those two in relation to each other so if like concrete monstrosity was like the big political buzzword for a while to demonize like various forms of housing and the people who lived there and now it's all about beauty those those two don't sit in isolation from each other they're kind of like on the same political trajectory that's right and I think you raise an interesting point there because this this is a generational uh debate as well so I think the younger, you know, your generation, forgive me for uh, patronising you with <laughs> putting words in your mouth, but I think your generation probably is is quite happy with, you know, brutalist blocks and inner city living and, uh, you know, the kind of towers and uh, a much more kind of post-war approach than the old generation who, gen- who, who benefited, who ironically benefited from the right to buy of exactly those kinds of housings that are now very fashionable amongst younger people. Uh, to go and then buy, you know, places in the country that are much more traditional. So in a way, there's this culture war debate with it, which is not now class-based as it used to be, but is age-based. There's an older generation, uh, you know, who is all behind the kind of beauty uh, rhetoric, the kind of um, uh, Boys Smith creates streets, Poundbury, you know, Georgian uh, notion. And then there's a younger generation that's shut out of housing, but is actually not that concerned about living in a beautiful Cornish, Cornish cottage, quite happy to live in a, you know, in a, a kind of super urban modernist uh, high rise. Uh, but they're being shut out of the conversation. So their beauty is is being kind of ignored in this debate. You are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City friend. The Lundown is supported by Adobe, makers of software including Photoshop, InDesign and Audition, the programme we use to edit this show. Go to open-city.org.uk forward slash Adobe to sign up for a special discounted subscription to the Adobe Creative Suite for as little as 9 99 a month and Adobe will donate to Open City for everyone who signs up. Our second story was covered in the AJ and is all to do with the TV architect George Clark's blasting of the government over the shambolic cladding scandal. Clark has posted a video of the Grenfell Tower fire on Instagram in an impassioned plea for the government to take action on the cladding crisis. Clark said he was posting the video filmed from his garden on the night of the fire in June 2017 as a, quote, difficult and painful reminder, there must be justice for the 72 people who died in the blaze, as well as those still living in unsafe buildings. In an appeal to Prime Minister Boris Johnson and New Housing Secretary Michael Gove, Clark wrote, I'm begging you both, please sort out the cladding scandal once and for all. Protect all these holders who are currently facing massive bills to make their homes safe when none of this is their fault. 
Earlier this week, a young entrepreneur, Tom Mansell, was named as the first suicide victim linked to the cladding scandal. The 37-year-old faced huge bills for the four high-rise flats he rented out. Following his death, the campaign group End Our Cladding Scandal wrote to the housing secretary to say that while Mansell had a history of depression, the cladding crisis played a significant role in his untimely death. Protesters have gathered at the Tory party conference in Manchester, a city which has been heavily affected by the cladding crisis and has the biggest number of applicants to the building safety fund of any region outside London. Clark, along with Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham and local MP Lucy Powell, attended the Manchester Cladiators campaign group conference on the weekend to raise awareness about the ongoing problems experienced by leaseholders trapped in unsafe flats. Eddie, what's the significance of George Clark having this conversation now? Again, it's, it's, this is one of those super complicated questions that there are so many ways into. Obviously, the, the Grenfell fire was an unbelievable tragedy and an, an unbelievable travesty. I mean, it should never have been allowed to happen. But fundamentally, this was a problem of the government's own making. It's weak legislation, uh, weak reg- regulation of the building industry. So these standards were allowed to slip because uh, regulation uh, was not up to scratch. It was easily uh, bypassed. It was easily diluted. And, um, you know, this, the, the, these products, which were uh, inferior and known to be dangerous, were allowed to be used. So you very easily could argue that the whole thing is absolutely to be laid at the government's door. The, of all governments, actually, of all stripes. So the Tories have been in for a long time. But, you know, remember that the Labour Party didn't do much about this either. Now, it's great that George Clark is raising it. I mean, George Clark is a is a TV uh, celebrity, and that's pretty much the only uh, kind of voice that's listened to now. So it's terrific that he's he's listened to. And there aren't many voices in, in the kind of mainstream media talking about architecture. So that's a, that's a positive thing. But... Fundamentally, this is very similar to the question that we were talking about before. This is a, it's a problem of uh, regulation of materials. What is allowed to be used? I mean, you know, this this problem would never have arisen in Germany, for instance, or in Switzerland, where there is extremely strict testing of materials and uh, regulation of what materials can be used. And in a way, you might argue it also ties in with this kind of beauty agenda where an awful lot of these schemes like Grenfell were just, you know, totally decent, uh, if if maybe slightly shoddily built uh, 1970s buildings being clad to make them more attractive. Um, and, you know, it's so in a way, it all stems from this kind of bizarre, distorted idea we have in this country of what's beautiful. Um and and you know allied with the the construction industry's 11 mount, 11 million pound funding in 22 of the conservative party uh, and, and you know the interests of a party which is dominated by landlords clearly are to keep construction cheap and keep landlords rights at the top of the agenda our next story takes us down the road from Grenfell to Charles Jenks' postmodernist spectacle, The Cosmic House, which this month has opened its doors to the public for the first time. Our guest this week, Eddie, has worked closely on the museum conversion project as head of its steering committee and in the role of Keeper of Meaning, a direct appointment made by Jenks himself. The Holland Park Villa is the UK's only Grade 1 listed post-war home and was designed by the famed architectural historian Charles Jenks, writer and pundit, whose book helped to define postmodernism as an architectural style. 
Two years after the famed architecture critic and eccentric landscape designer's death, guests are now able to freely explore the various spiral staircases, astral ceilings, faux marble finishings, mirrored passageways and whirlpool baths of this truly quirky building. Uh, So Eddie, last time you were on the show back in June, you were in the midst of preparations for the public opening. Now the doors have finally opened, what has the response been like? What have people's reactions been to this exceptionally out there building? People's responses have been fantastic, actually much, much more positive than than I would have imagined. I I would have, in a way, uh, imagined a kind of mixed uh, response. You know, here we are with this... um, very strange, very personal, very eccentric house. Uh, I think it points to a kind of uh, admiration for a, a total vision, you know, regardless of, of whether you necessarily are completely in sympathy with the aesthetic uh, uh, aims of that vision, uh, and and a kind of curiosity, a sense of curiosity, now that postmodernism is is old it's passed into architectural history and uh so much of it has been destroyed you know there really are so few kind of intact postmodern um interiors left and suddenly this becomes a real kind of unique uh, opportunity to to immerse yourself completely in a in a, in a in a moment so so far the cosmic house has proved um exceptionally successful uh tickets are almost entirely booked up until the middle of december when you compare that to other visitor attractions that have opened this year, like the Marble Arch Mound, for example, um, who have struggled to shift tickets, that's quite a feat. What do you think it is about Jenks House that's so magnetic? Well, I think first I have to make a little proviso, which is that we're very limited in, in the terms of the the numbers, visitor numbers, we know the, the planning um, permission. Um, but I think the answer to your question, you know, why have we been successful, is is firstly that it's a house uh, and I think people can very much relate to the house as a as an archetype you know everyone has a home well you know that's most people have a home and they can um, somehow put themselves in the shoes of someone trying to design themselves an ideal home which is what Charles Jenks had the um, had the opportunity to do and using the house as a kind of extension of an expression of the personality uh, but second, uh, you know, in contrast to, you know, for argument's sake, the Marble Arch Mound that you bring up, this is an architecture absolutely densely packed with iconography and ideas. So if, if the if the trend now in, let's call it iconic architecture, which is what I never use in print, but I'm going to say it now, is towards a single thing, a kind of a moment of experience. You know, you climb up a vessel, you climb up a set of stairs, you climb up a kind of a turfed temporary hill. It's all about the kind of, or the tulip, you know, with Foster's Tulip, which is in planning at the moment in the city. It's all about a kind of view or a moment and then a kind of uh, Instagrammable uh, picture and then you're off again. The house really is not that. The house is absolutely a kind of container of extremely uh, deeply held beliefs and ideas and an experiment in how we could revive a symbolic architecture that was maybe the case with a Gothic cathedral or a, or a Roman temple for a secular age. You know, what what would be the, the motives and the ideas, the contemporary ideas that we would look to to... Um, 
to express something about our age. Our penultimate story was covered in the AJ and is all to do with the £13 million revamp of the V&A Museum of Childhood in Bethnal Green. New images of AOC architecture and Dematos Ryan's planned overhaul of the Grade 2 listed building have been released to mark the start of construction work a year later than planned. The museum, which is to be renamed Young V&A, will be closed to the public until 2023 as the building and its collections are renovated. Dematos Ryan was appointed in early 2018 for the main works to the building's exterior and to develop full base build design, which includes structural changes, heritage restoration, lighting and acoustic upgrades and delivery of a new suite of new workshop spaces. In parallel, AOC, the design team responsible for the fit-out, is completing the final detailed drawings for construction tender in early autumn. Their concept designs include three new permanent galleries entitled Imagine, Play and Design, a temporary exhibition space and a complete reimagination of the visitor experience throughout the museum. There are also plans for an amphitheatre-style stage. Initially, Dematos Ryan's proposed changes proved controversial, with the architects behind the museum's 2006 extension, Crusoe St John, complaining that the project would ruin the symmetry of the building's entrance. However, a redesign of the front landscape in 2019 saw the plans receive approval. According to the V&A, sustainability and environmental responsibility have been fundamental. It will include the reuse of materials from demolition rubble to become repurposed elements of past V&A exhibitions. Helen Charman, V&A of Learning, National Programmes and Young V&A said... Quote, reinvention is woven into the fabric of this incredible building, from the iconic ironwork structure, part of the original Great Exhibition in 1851, to its rebranding in 1974 in recognition of the museum's popularity with local schools and families. Um, Eddie, what's this all about? The V&A is quickly growing its architectural empire with Kengo Kumar designed V&A Dundee, the new Queen Elizabeth Park designed by O'Donnell Tuomi, due to open in 2024, and of course the main V&A site in South Kensington, uh, with recent upgrades by the likes of Ava Derichner, Gareth Hoskins and Boomer Architects. In a time where people are having to fork out hundreds of thousands out of their own pockets to remove flammable materials from their homes, and people are still reeling from the effects of the pandemic, how is it that so much money is being funnelled into design projects like these? The V&A has been a really exemplary client over the last uh, 20 years or so. So it has genuinely and intelligently uh, employed and commissioned young, interesting architects, mostly from Britain, uh, to do uh, a kind of, and to add layers of complexity and usability to their museums. So firstly, I think I've got to put that in in the frame, that they've been, almost you know unique as a client with that kind of visibility and visitor numbers in using really interesting uh designers uh, and th- and this is very much in that vein so dematos ryan and aoc are terrific architects and i'm, I'm sure what they come up with is going to be uh, is going to be great the caruso sinjin's uh, 2006 uh rebuilding which is quite extensive was an interesting experiment in doing something else with the Children's Museum. So why wouldn't you actually make it very mature and grown up? Why does a Children's Museum have to look like 
a bloody great nursery in a mall. And at the time, I thought, actually, yeah, that's a very uh, that's a very kind of intelligent approach. Let's see. Let's see how that works. And frankly, it was a bit dry. So, you know, interestingly, I think now the pendulum has swung a little bit back towards the other direction with AOC, who are known for their kind of super graphics and their, you know, colors and that kind of a humor imbued in the architecture. So it's interesting how the how the pendulum swings back and forth. You know, it's it's a the VNA is a very interesting institution because it is already spread across uh, London and Britain, and I think, you know, I I think they've probably made an enormous mistake in uh, building their new museum in the um, in the Olympic Park. I think that there's a very good argument for their big archive, which um, Dilla and Scafidi and Renfro are doing, but I think they're probably making a colossal mistake with the other museum there. They're just going to be burdened now with. Uh, with paying that off and having to create in a position of having to create kind of blockbusters to sustain the machine. I mean, I, I hope I'm wrong because I absolutely, I love the VNA and I think it's, uh, uh, you know, I tell, I'll tell you a, a sort of personal story. I, um, I about 17, 18 years ago, I had cancer and I was being treated at Royal Marsden in, um, in Kensington. And I had this gap between my two kind of chemo sessions. And I always used to go into the, if I had the energy, I'd go into the uh, the V&A and just look at, I don't know, Korean pots or French 18th century ironwork or something. And it was completely life affirming. Just that little moment of going in for free, walking in without having to pay. So you, you can then justify just looking at one pot or one you know kimono or whatever isn't coming out. It's the most life confirming, life affirming kind of collection it really is. And it's a fantastic institution. Speaking about the V&A more generally and their decision to rename the museum and kind of linking it back to bigger conversation that institutions are having to have around their around their histories what do you make of the decision to rename the museum as young vna um firstly for you what was wrong with museum of childhood if anything um and why when other museums such as the museum of home previously the jeffrey museum um, have moved away from their colonial history what in your kind of interpretation, they've decided to keep their links to Victorian Albert, um, who were the heads of a Victorian empire. The whole museum world has to face the legacy of empire, obviously, and it's it's ingrained in the V&A name, um, inscribed in the you know in the front of the building. But you maybe need to differentiate between the artifacts, whether they're the um, the, the kind of the, the consequences of looting and uh, and sort of you know gain in, in in some kind of unscrupulous way an empire and all the legacies of that with uh the potential for an institution to do good so i think it would be wrong for us to condemn outright all museums for everything because of what is actually a relatively small part of their program so i think it needs to be addressed uh in a way that doesn't damage the institutions which are a critical part of our cultural life. So I think to some extent, it's a, again, it's a kind of MacGuffin to, it's a sort of a, a, a diversion to worry too much about the, um, the V&A name. It's a bit like taking a monarch's name off a post box because it was, uh, you know, connected in some way with um, colonialization in a way. I think the the culture wars that we're, Launch, being launched into now by the conservatives and, and the neocons around the world 
are kind of rearing to have this discussion with us. They want us to fall into the trap of saying we should rename the V&A because that's exactly the territory they want their fight on. You know, it's the Churchill statue, kind of Victoria, Albert Memorial sort of world of weird nostalgia that, that the Tories actually want to get into rather than the substantial politics of, uh, you know, which really needs addressing, whether it's housing or justice or, or safety of women. You know, these are the, these are the things that actually are affecting our, our everyday existence. And this is kind of the icing on the cake. I mean, we can have the discussion, but I think the deeper we go into the discussion, the more we fall into the trap. So our final story is all to do with a new design competition for RIBA HQ revamp, which was covered in the AJ this week. New RIBA president Simon Olford has said the Institute will search for a design team to redevelop its Grade 2 listed headquarters at 66 Portland Place in central London. The 1934 building by G. Gray Warnham has undergone a gradual series of upgrades throughout its history, most recently with the addition of a Hayhurst co-designed learning centre and a Commodity Groke designed gallery. Olford, who is also an AHMM co-founder, used his first council meeting as president to pledge to, quote, properly invest in this building and make it an exemplary net zero carbon facility. He went on to stipulate that the plan is to appoint through a competitive process a master plan architect working with a conservation architect and a group of young practices. Olford pointed out that the 66 Portland Place is currently not properly accessible as many wheelchair users are unable to fit into the lifts, saying, quote, From my experience with other listed buildings, we have got a very good case to make that this building needs to be made properly accessible. The redevelopment plans come as RIBA Chief Executive Alan Valance said the RIBA was preparing to sell 76 Portland Place, which received a 2.9 million revamp by architects Thiessen Khan in 2015 and is where it currently has offices for its staff as well as a members cafe. This apparently is to plug an £8 million budget deficit from the financial year ending in December 2020, which also sees staff being let go. So, Eddie, what's the significance of this RIBA competition? If, if the opportunity is there to do a design competition, then I think it was Russell Curtis of RCKA said, you know, this is the opportunity for the RIBA to lay out exactly how a competition should be done. And I think that's, that's absolutely right. This is the point for them to say, this is how we run an exemplary competition, you know, not looking at the turnover of firms, not looking at their scale or their experience necessarily, but looking at their, the intelligence of their proposals of what they could do, their potential and so on. So, yeah, I mean, I don't really know the, the 76 Portland Place building, so can't comment on it, I'm afraid. But the 66 Portland Place building is quite something. It seems to me one of the most insanely underused resources in London. I mean, I know they rent it out for conferences and they make a lot of money from... Uh, 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 kind of having events there and so on but it never seemed to me a building that really engaged the city despite its incredible kind of civic presence thank you for coming on eddie where can people find out more about your work well it's all on fd.com but i'm afraid that's a uh, a subscription website so you'll need to um pay for that in the old style model otherwise i'm on twitter as uh, under my name and i'm on instagram as well hethke edwin lovely thanks eddie thanks a lot nice to talk with you you've been listening to the london 
show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to the Architects Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.